I'm going to pray, and then we'll get going. Father in heaven, you are uh, the God from whom all good things uh, come down. We know everything we receive comes from you. And so we bless you this morning for, uh, for a new day, for our health, for waking us up this morning. And we bless you for providing a safe environment in which we can meet. We remember brothers and sisters around the world for whom that, that gift is not available this morning. Uh, we praise you that we have your word in, in our own language. We can look at it uh, together and talk about it with brothers and sisters. We praise you for one another, um, the gift of the church, the gift of uh, the family uh, of God. Uh, we pray, therefore, this morning that you would give us the gift uh, of your spirit in increasing measure, that he might open our eyes to see uh, more clearly uh, all that your son has said to us in his words. Shape, fashion us into his likeness, we pray. Uh, if we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, uh, morning and uh, welcome. Um, We are keeping going with this series called Adam and Eve in Exile, thinking about gender in the Bible, sex and gender in the Bible. What does it mean to be male and female? And we're going to start pretty much straight away with some discussion. Um, Last time, uh, I tried to sort of lay out how... The New Testament presents the the church leadership role, usually called the elders, sometimes the overseers or bishops, if you like, um, sometimes the pastors or shepherds. Um, The New Testament presents that as a male office. And in fact, that's the same all the way through Scripture. There's nothing new in the New Testament. It's not something Paul cooked up. It was there right in Genesis with Adam. It was there with the priests of the Old Testament church. Um, It's there with Jesus, obviously, and the apostles. Uh, And so, unsurprisingly, it continues it was also the church practice for 1900 odd years. Um, you, you just won't really find kind of really any denominations that thought anything other than that until somewhere in the 20th century, um, which is a bit of a clue that possibly it was the right position. Yeah, the church can get things wrong, obviously, um, but when everybody gets it wrong for the best part of two millennia, it probably makes you a little bit suspicious. Um, so this week, uh, what, what I want to do in a, sort of the second half of the session is look at some passages in, in 1 Corinthians. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians has got some of the kind of famous, famously difficult passages about gender. Um, and particularly, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11, talks about head coverings, all that kind of thing. Um, but I talked too much last week, so I want to give you a chance to, to chat more to get going. So around tables, and apologies, if it's your first week, apologies in that it's sort of going off what we, we looked at last week. But... Um, Two, two things, two sort of discussion-y type questions. Um, imagine you heard the following from a Christian, okay? From a Christian, not, not from somebody who's like, oh, I don't believe any of that anyway, but from a Christian. What, what might you say to help somebody who, who sort of said this? So that they've heard that, you know, nasty old Christchurch Central doesn't, doesn't have uh, female elders or female preachers. Um, and they say, but have you heard Sarah preach? Sarah's imaginary. Okay, she's so gifted. People have been transformed by her ministry. How can you say she shouldn't be a minister? Okay, but that, that argument from experience. There are so many gifted female preachers. How can you say they shouldn't be uh, a minister? And then a, a second one, um, Galatians 3. Have a little, oh, I put that way too long. It's not meant to be Galatians 3, 26 to 5, 29. It's just meant to be Galatians 3, 26 to 29. Particularly verse 28. There are no longer... 
You'll see in the middle of that verse it says, alongside the being no longer um, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, it says there's no longer male or female. So someone says, look, there's no male or female anymore. Paul says that. So you can't say men should be, only men should be elders because gender doesn't really exist anymore. Paul says so. Let's do, I don't know, five, ten minutes, round tables, have a crack at those. Just to get us going, let's, why don't you guys do the Galatians one first, front table and back right, and you two do the, but Sarah's so gifted one. And then if you finish that one, switch. But at least that means we've got coverage of all the, uh, both questions. Ignore Junior and Priscilla and Aquila. Um, just on, the, on those two questions, I want, we need to keep moving so we won't do loads of feedback across the, the two tables. Um, they're, they're quite common things that come up, quite common objections that come up um, when you get talk, talking about this issue of, of gender in the church. Um, on the first one, oh, but, you know, my minister at home was a woman and she was brilliant and gifted and all the rest of it. You, you don't need to deny that. Okay? <laughs> absolutely nothing I'm saying, or nothing more importantly the Bible teaches, denies that there are really gifted women at teaching the Bible. Nor, of course, do you have to go around saying, well, no one was really helped by her ministry. Um, you know, God is gracious. He does all sorts of things through us. He does, works through us when we're idiots. He works through us when we are maybe the right person in the wrong place. All sorts of things. So you definitely don't need to start going around denying. And, and I remember in my, in, back in Derby, someone said to me, um, it was sort of slightly kind of uh, like a, a young man who'd got a little bit too zealous, perhaps, might be a good way of putting it. Um, he was like, you know, why don't you go around telling the other churches where they've all gone wrong? It's like, it's just not my job. You know, it's not, it's, it's not my job as minister of one church in Derby to go around all the other churches in the city saying, mm, you're a bit charismatic, you're a bit Catholic, you're a bit... So, basically, I, you, you definitely shouldn't be receiving this material and feeling like you need to go on some sort of crusade against all your mates at CU who have got a different position or whatever. So, having said which, just because... Um, you know, just because uh, someone feels blessed by a ministry doesn't necessarily doesn't negate everything the New Testament has to say, basically. Um, so it could be that, who was it? Sarah is, is a very gifted Bible teacher. Great, use those Bible teaching gifts, but just not in that position. Because, you know, if, if what we've seen over the last few weeks is right, then you can't use your experience to trump the Bible. So maybe God has given this person loads of teaching gifts, but he's also, in his word, taught us where those gifts ought to be used. Um, on the Galatians one, um, two things really. Firstly, very quickly, Paul absolutely is not saying, hey, there's no gender anymore. Any more than he's saying there's no such thing as a Gentile or a Jew. I mean, there's still a lot of Jewish people, aren't there? I mean, and non-Jews. Um, rather, what he's saying in the context of the whole letter of Galatians is, um, you guys have been sort of dividing into the ins and the outs. Um, the, the proper Christians are the circumcised Jewish heritage types and the other ones are kind of second class well there's none of that anymore Jesus has made us all one family he's not denying that people are male and female um, it's pretty obvious from everything else he says about gender in the Bible everything else Jesus says so you can't use that verse just to erase all the other yeah, everything else the Bible has to say basically uh, about gender not least what Paul has to say about gender so it's Paul who wrote Galatians and Paul who wrote 1 Timothy 2 and indeed Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians 11, which we're about to look at in a moment. Uh, just two, I put down there two other examples, two other um, sort of classic pushback arguments you get. Um, just turn to Romans 16 because they both pop up there. So these, these are classic arguments people would use to say, no, no, it's right that 
um, women should be elders of churches and um, preaching and all the rest of it. Um, first is the example of junior. So Romans 16, 7, here comes junior. Romans 16, verse 7, Paul says, Greet Andronicus and junior, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They're well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Now you might look, look at that and say, how on earth do you get from there to the idea that there ought to be female ministers? And to be honest, you'd be right. But um, in some translations, or if you work hard enough, um, you could translate it, greet Andronicus and Junior. Um, they are outstanding among the apostles. Okay, so some translations, they are outstanding among the apostles. Now, it's a bit torturous to translate it that way, but it is conceivable grammatically. So some people, therefore, say, look, um, Junior and Andronicus, they are not just apostles, but they're outstanding apostles. Um, to my mind, that is a massive stretch. Um, first of all, the name, Junior, it, it's, it's a little bit, it's a bit like saying, um, if I said, oh, my friend Sam's coming this morning, would you know if it's a boy or a girl about to walk through the door? You just wouldn't, would you? It could be either. It's one of those unisex. So similarly with the junior, it could be junior, could be a man, could be a woman. We're not, not 100% sure. Um, secondly, the ESV translation is much more likely, well-known to the apostles than, than sort of outstanding among them. Um, and so it's far more likely that all Paul is saying is, say hello to Andronicus and Junior, this married couple, um, who are really, you know, who the apostles think highly of. Okay, so it's a long way to get to female apostles from, from Junior from there. And also it'd be extraordinary, wouldn't it? That would be the only thing we know. And apparently Andronicus and Junior are kind of the top apostles. We've never heard of them apart from this one verse in scripture. It'd be slightly unlikely. Um, and just a bit higher in that passage, verse 3, Greek Priscilla or Prisca, as she is here, sometimes she's called Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. This is a couple we see more often, actually, in, in, in Acts in particular. Um, we won't turn to it now, but Acts 18, you meet Priscilla and Aquila a bit. And they, um, they welcome Barnabas into their house and teach him. So Barnabas is, is newly converted, he's full of zeal, but he's not kind of brilliant on the Bible yet. So they, they welcome him in and, and teach him. And so some people say, look... There we go. There's an example of, of, of women ministers. Prisca, who's the woman in the couple, or Priscilla. Um, and and um, look, her name's first. It's Priscilla and Aquila, not Aquila and Priscilla. So that shows she's the leader in that marriage, and she is, you know, therefore the leader in the ministry. Um, to which I want to say, first of all, one sense, fine. Yeah, there's a couple doing ministry together. What's the problem there? You know, if you're a married couple and someone gets newly converted and you have them around the house and you sit around and you talk about the Bible and great, no one's objecting to that. Um, but to move from the fact that her name is first to mean that um, she must be the leader of the marriage, not, you know, not, not Aquila. And again, it's just massive overreaching. Um, far more likely that when her name comes first, as it does here, it doesn't always, but here it does, it's it just no significance to it. So you know, if I think about couples in the church, if I think of Ben and Sally, I usually say Ben and Sally because I knew Ben before I knew Sally. Whereas I think of Gwiz and Tom, I think of Gwiz and Tom because I knew Gwiz before Tom. Then Gwiz married Tom, so I got stuck with Tom too. But it, you know, it's not, there's no significance. It's not that like I think Gwiz is the head of the marriage um, in their couple and Ben's the head of the marriage. It's just kind of how I think of them, just who I knew first, that kind of thing. So, um, I, I suppose that, that is, both with the passages you looked at just now and those two little examples, though, those are some of the pushback you get against the, the position I've been trying to teach. And, um, yeah, frankly, I don't find it massively convincing. 
Uh, but let's turn, though, to, to a bit of a meaty passage. 1 Corinthians 11. And um, this, is, this is definitely a tricky passage, which, um, as you'll see, touches on gender roles pretty clearly. Let me read from verse 2. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a church that's in chaos. So much going on. You've got a, a guy sleeping with his mother-in-law. Um, you've got, I mean, just mayhem if you read about the church in Corinth. Um, and Paul is writing this letter responding to different issues. And now he turns to a new one. Verse 2 of chapter 11. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, the Lord, uh, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. What about that? Um, let's run one to three. Um, the first and the last verse, so verse two, I commend you because you maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. And verse 16, if anyone's inclined to be contentious, as in disagree and do something otherwise, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul is saying, look, what I'm teaching here is common across all the churches. It's not about Corinth. Okay, this is a standard position across the churches. And it's all to do with this question of, sort of gender and headship. Verse 3, there is a, a, an ordering again, an ordering that comes from creation. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is our husband, and the head of Christ is God. Um, head there is, an, is, is a sort of authority thing. Okay, it doesn't mean, sometimes people say, oh, it just means source. You know, one comes from the other, like the, the head of a river. Um, but whenever Paul uses that word, or most of the time when Paul uses that word head, it clearly has to do with authority. Christ is the head of the church. Um, uh, and he goes on to say, and all things are put under his feet. It's a, yeah, just a very normal kind of authority word. And there's a pattern. Um, so God is the head of Christ. So God is the head of Christ. Christ being considered there as, as man. Okay, it's not talking about the Trinity as if Father is higher than Son. That there's only one God, so the Father is not higher than the Son in the Trinity. But Christ, Jesus Christ, the Saviour, the one who came to earth, um, he did his Father's will. So there's an ordering there. God, um, Christ. Uh, and then Paul goes on. Um, Christ is the head of the husband, okay, obviously. And but as we've seen before in this sort of, um, marriage relationships, um, the husband is the head of the wife. Now, it's worth saying here that the word for woman and wife in Greek are the same. There's not a different word. So you could go through this whole passage, and every time it says wife, 
just put woman or vice versa. It doesn't really make much difference to where you end up, to be honest. Um, if you put woman in all the way through, then it just ex extends the picture from um, uh, a, uh, a husband being the head of a wife to um, a woman having either her husband or her dad over her. Okay? So it's not talking about all men and all women, as if every man can just tell every woman what to do. I mean, that's not even how it works in marriage, is it? But um, it's not talking about some generic, uh, just all men are meant to, or sorry, all women are meant to submit to all, all men. Okay, it's within the context of the family structure you're in. But we'll sit with wives and husbands because I think that's more likely. And all Paul's really doing is going back to those Genesis 1 to 3 patterns. Okay, the things we've seen all the way through, from Genesis 2 right the way through Ephesians 5. There is an ordering in marriage. And it seems that in Corinth, when, um, when they come together to meet, okay, so he's dealing with maybe a church prayer meeting or something like that, who knows quite. When they come together to meet... Paul wants them to make sure this creational order, these gender distinctions and roles, are maintained. And that's why I think he, he deals with um, the whole idea of head coverings. <coughs> um, so, verse 4 and 5, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with a head uncovered dishonours her head. If a man puts on a, probably a shawl and when he prays, He's dishonouring his head. Who's his head? His head's Christ. Uh, if a woman prays without a head covering, pro again, probably a shawl, we don't quite know, then she's dishonouring her head, i.e. her husband. Men are not meant to have head coverings, Paul is saying, that the wives are. Why? Uh, again, it's all, I think, to do... Um, it's all to do with this idea of recognising the authority over you. So, um, I'll touch on this a bit later, but it seems that at least in the culture of the day, wearing a shawl or some sort of head covering was a, for a wife was a sign that you were recognising your husband's authority. So when the, 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 I don't know, the Corinthian church prayer meeting, whatever it was, came together, if wives sort of took off these shawls saying, hey, I don't need to recognise my husband's authority anymore, Paul's saying, you've got a problem. Okay? It's not like those marriage relationships dissolve when you walk through the door of church on Sunday morning or Wednesday evening or whatever it might be. Similarly, if a man starts doing, you know, putting a, a shawl on his head saying, I'm under the authority, effective my wife, you're also reversing the order. Because the order is meant to go God, Christ, husband, wife, not the other way around. Uh, that's why I think in verses 5 and 6, Paul goes on, look, if, if a wife won't cover her head, you know, recognise her husband's authority when she's praying, then you might as well go the full hog, cut your hair off. You, know, you might just pretend you're a man then. Okay, he's not actually advocating that as a good answer, but that would be, it's, it's a bit like in, in Paul's mind, that would be so ridiculous. That shows how obvious it is um, that you must wear a head covering. And then in verses 7 through 9, Paul gives another reason um, for why this sort of order remains. A man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, what on earth does that mean? I think probably the next verse explains it. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. The, the, the crowning glory, if you like, of um, uh, in verse... Uh, sorry, verse 7. Um, Paul says, look, man is made in the image of God, but woman is the glory of man. It was um, the crowning gift to man when woman was made. Okay, she, she is the... 
the sort of glorious thing that came directly from him, just like the most glorious thing that came directly from God in the creation was man. Okay, man was kind of head of creation. Um, similarly in verse 8, sorry, verse 9, he's going back to Genesis 2 again. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Remember, Eve was made as a helper. Okay, again, it's not meant to be, it's not first, best, second, worst, that kind of thing. But he's just going back to those creation patterns again and again and again. And just in case there were kind of proto-sexists in the uh, Corinthian congregation, um, in verse 11 and 12, he, he, he makes sure they understand it's not a ranking thing. Of course, in the Lord, woman isn't independent of man nor man of woman. You both need each other, wife and husband or woman and man. And remember, boys, before you start getting up yourselves, verse 12, as woman was made from man, sure, but also now you were born of a woman. Okay, and you all come from God, so don't turn this into some sort of ranking thing or anything like that. Yet still, there is an ordering. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Is it proper for a wife to come to the prayer meeting and symbolically throw off her husband's authority? You know, act as if she's single, as it were. And does not, verse 14, does not even nature teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? Doesn't even nature tell us we're meant to be male and female? Okay, you don't even, it's almost like Paul saying you don't even need the Bible. Okay, it's, it's just in natural revelation that is there. Uh, it is clear. Um, there's all sorts of complications in that passage. If I ignore the angels, who knows what they're about? All sorts of other stuff going on there. But big picture, I think that some things are clear. Well, let's, let's ask some big questions anyway. Um, is Paul saying to us this morning, wives or women should still wear head coverings? Well, lots of Christians do think so. Okay, and if you do think so, it would be a very reasonable reading of the passage. If so, go for it with no shame. And we mustn't mock people who, who take that position. If they genuinely think that's what this passage is commanding, then do it. Go for it. Um, we shouldn't sneer at it, certainly. But personally, I think the actual shawl thing, the head covering, is a cultural expression of a biblical principle. Okay, so it's a cultural expression um, in early Roman or Romano-Greek society of showing that you are respecting your husband's authority. Um, and it just isn't in our culture, is it? Okay, wearing a head shawl doesn't really mean anything for us. Um, similarly, verse 14. Um, is long hair always feminine? Well, what about Samson? I mean, he never cut his hair. He was definitely not feminine. Okay, there are, you know, Greek soldiers, some of the Greek soldiers back in the day had long hair, and um, they definitely weren't feminine. Um, but, but Paul can still say nature tells us, um, nature tells us that, that boys have sh- short hair and girls have long hair, fur <coughs> hair. And so what, what Paul is doing, which is quite unusual, I think, um, and, and maybe a bit weird to us, is he's sort of, um, sm- sort of, smashing together, pushing together, nature and culture. So I I think what he's saying is, look, nature tells us we are different. Um, And particularly in their society, look, long hair, women, short hair, men. Okay, so don't mess around with it. Don't, you know, men look like men, women look like women. Don't don't undo that. Similarly, you probably could say in our society, doesn't nature tell us that men don't wear skirts? Now, at which point a Scotsman puts his hand up and says, no. <laughs> and you're like, okay, fine. That's totally fine. Okay, if you're in Scotland and you're wearing a kilt, good on you. 
Okay, that, that's not a problem. But in England, most of the time, if you are a man, you walk into, certainly if you walk into church wearing a little kind of, I don't know, a little pencil skirt or a nice sort of flouncy thing, can I give you a Bible verse about not wearing skirts? No, of course I can't. But is it okay? I think people say no. No, it's not. Nature tells you, male, female. And so you have to basically go along with your kind of cultural differences there. Um, yeah. Uh, big point is, um, two big places I've got on the sheet, gender distinctions ought not to be erased when the church gathers. So when we come through the door of church for a prayer meeting or a Sunday service, whatever, we don't, we don't forget we're male and female, and nor do we erase or, or get rid of um, gender patterns, husbands leading, wives fully involved, notice they're praying, they're prophesying, whatever that is in the first century, but still as the wife of the husband. So the distinctions and the patterns don't disappear. So just for, we've got very little time, just for a couple of minutes, round tables, have a crack at that discussion question. How could we continue to show we see male-female distinctions and the male-female gender patterns we've seen in scripture are real and significant when we gather? Okay, to gather to pray or gather to worship, whatever it might be. Okay, a church that respected gender distinctions and patterns how would we see that in, in church life? Just a couple of minutes round tables. Have a go. Okay, I, just to give the musicians a bit of a chance, I'm going to have to uh, call us together for a couple of minutes of summing up and possibly some questions. Um, how, how do we keep male-female distinctions and roles there when we gather um, some of the obvious ones I suppose come straight out 1 Corinthians how we dress um, present ourselves um, particularly in our culture actually the, the idea that gender is a spectrum all that sort of stuff we need to be clear isn't true it's binary you're, you're a man or a woman um, yep um, but start, if you start thinking about if you think the only difference between men and women is biology then basically, there's kind of nothing to say, is there? I mean, okay, you know, you're just going to be a man when you come to church. You're going to be a woman. There's nothing to say. But actually, if, if you, if you, if as I hope we've seen over the last few weeks, you start saying, actually, there are some, there are some patterns here. Um, not rules always, some rules, but lots. Of, they're just patterns about how actually we're different in more than just our chromosomes and genitalia. Then you might see, expect to see that worked out. Uh, I read an article about two weeks ago about, not a Christian article, um, it's, it's a bit of research that was done across the world, loads of different countries, um, re- researching the, the percentage, the gender balance in, in kind of STEM careers, so science, tech, engineering, uh, what's that, maths or whatever it is. Um, and there's a cl- classic thing in the West at the moment, we need to get more women into STEM type careers. Okay, the gender imbalance, way more engineers are male than female. If you're studying engineering at uni, it's always a huge imbalance. And this, this group of, again, not Christians, not, no agenda, massive worldwide, you know, looking at all the different countries. And what they discovered was the higher the country's commitment to equal rights, the lower the percentage of women in STEM jobs, okay, the greater the imbalance. So in some countries, typically either ones that were economically struggling or were frankly not great on gender rights, um, you had a much higher, much more equal balance. Why? Because basically, if you just let people choose, and they've actually got the opportunity to choose rather than just having to work to, to eat, 
then on the whole, and it's not a rule, obviously, but on the whole, there just are more men who are kind of that way orientated than women. It doesn't mean it's wrong to be a female engineer. Of course it isn't. Um, but it's just, just one of those things that seems to happen. I remember back in Derby, I was chair of governors of primary school for quite, quite a few years, and one of the things that happened every year was, on the whole, when they kind of left primary school, the boys did better in maths and the girls did better in English. And we used to have this sort of external advisor who'd come in and say, you've got to even that out. Unless you genuinely think our teachers are, you know, being sexist against the boys when they teach English and sexist against the girls when they teach maths for some bizarre reason, maybe it's just one of those things that tends to happen, which frankly it does just tend to happen. In other words, even even kind of secular research will tell you, actually, broadly speaking, and that there are just often differences, big picture differences. And so I think if you couple that with what we've seen in scripture over the last how many weeks. It wouldn't surprise me if when you, for example, you look at some of the rotors or the teams, there is an imbalance. Sometimes people go nuts about this. It's awful um, if, I don't know, looking after the under twos, there are more women on the rotor than men. Is it awful? Um, it's certain, don't mishear me. It is certainly, if you're a dad and you want to get on that rotor, great. Okay? There's, not, there's not a rules. But is it an awful thing? Why? If there's an orientation right from Genesis about the sort of, you know, mum's looking up, sorry, the Eve looking towards the children and the family and Adam out of it, is it awful? Would it be awful if, you know, the, the lugging stuff up from the bottom rotor had more men than women? Well, not really. Okay, if we had to have a security team like they do in some American churches, would it be wrong or awful if there were more men on that than women? I don't think so. Again, don't mishear me, it's not laws. It's just, I, basically, I suppose what I'm saying is we just chill out a bit. Um, you know, it, it would not surprise me at all if, I don't know, um, say we had 20 students all signed up on different rotors. More of the female students felt like they wanted to do that, um, to look after the creche day, and more of the boys wanted to lug stuff around than the other way around. If that happens, I'm just not going to be fussed about it. Now, again, that is not saying boys don't help on the creche rotor or whatever. Girls don't, don't on setup, But... We don't need to panic if, if our church doesn't look like gender is just totally interchangeable on everything apart from whoever's preaching that, that week. There you go. Um, that has probably got loads of questions. Okay, now, so you can all go absolutely uh, nuts at me over coffee. But let me pray and um, feel free, free to come and talk. Uh, Father in heaven, um, again, this is your church. It's your household. Uh, we neither want to bring into it uh, unhealthy teaching nor ignore healthy teaching that you've given us so i pray that everything we've looked at talked about that is from you would shape us everything that isn't would would fall away and oh, we pray your blessing upon us we know we fall short in so many ways uh, but we ask um particularly as we turn our minds to coming uh, to worship this morning we ask that in your mercy um you show us your son again his goodness and kindness to us uh, all that he's given uh, and lift our hearts uh, to know his love and peace in his name we pray Amen.